Hello and welcome to Comedy in a Nutshell, the podcast where I talk to writers, actors, comedians, dancers, singers, and more often than not, all of these are the same person. For a human being is a multifaceted, complicated creature, and a comedian is arguably very much like a human being, with jokes. I love talking to the people in comedy about comedy, so if you like to hear what I have to say as much as I do, then please like, subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. Thank you. My guest this episode is an energetic performer who received huge acclaim for his 2023 Edinburgh Fringe show entitled Not Much and performs extensively across the UK, Europe and Asia. It's stand-up comedian Ollie Horn. How did you realise that you wanted to be a comedian in the first place? Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I should have predicted it. A start strong. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that comedy was a job that you could do. Like I, I genuinely didn't. I always knew that you could be an actor and I always thought that'd be a fun thing to do. I liked being in plays at school, but I never had any ambitions to be a comedian, really. You know, I, I used to watch comedy on the TV. I used to love sitcoms. Mm. I remember as a teenager, I was obsessive about comedy scripts. You know, I, there used to be an industry where you could buy the scripts for things like Little Britain and The Office in bookshops. Yes. I used to read them. I remember even trying to kind of write jokes and not really understanding how to. <laughs> uh, but... I first kind of thought, oh, this is a this is something that people like me can do, which is obviously an absurd thing to think because I do kind of fit the the archetype of what a stand up comedian looked like in the nineties, right? <laughs> uh, but you know, even even that, you know, even the fact that I you know I, I share lots of those immutable characteristics of all the famous comedians from the generation I grew up with, I still thought, oh, that's something they do, not that I can do. And then uh, yeah, then then I, I was an exchange student in Paris. Uh, mm -hmm about when I was a student and uh, went to an open mic night. It was kind of like a showcase open mic combi thing. You know, they just had one English show a week at the time. Right. And yeah, just watched a bunch of people talk about stuff which, you know, related to me. And they, you know, looked a bit like me and were of a similar age. So I thought, this is great. But then never had any ambitions to actually do it as a job. Right. Um, and even now, when it is my job, I do feel, it, it, do, it feels odd and whenever comedians talk about it as a job or like often you often you see comics like tweet things like today's office right <laughs> and a, a picture of a bunch of fold-out chairs in the back of a pub and i think like we do try so hard to make this seem analogous to a job and and in many ways we have to right because there isn't a comedy hr and there is such thing as bullying and harassment and sexism or whatever in our workplace hmm. and we are providing services in exchange for money yeah. but I do think what we're doing is far more akin to like being pirates. Like every gig I do, I feel like I'm getting away <laughs> scamming people, you know, like how on earth am I the one that gets to leave this night with money in my pocket? Right. Yeah. When I'm the one that's doing what I want to be doing. It's absurd. Some comics say that it's years before they even call themselves a comedian. Is that the same for you? You're someone who does, you have a job and then you do comedy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think some people try to, to gatekeep this. And I remember I was giving some advice to someone on Instagram who's only done about four or five open mics. I'm like, no, you're a comedian. You know, if you're doing comedy, you're a comedian. I don't think we should, I don't think we should gatekeep these turns. But I do remember feeling slightly eggy when I, um, I was basically an open spot comedian two or three years into doing comedy. And I was doing a lot of stuff in, in Japan and I was, was doing comedy in, on Japanese television and they would, you know, put as the, as the lower thirds, Ollie Horn, up comedian. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, I'm pushing my luck. You know, I, I, it felt a bit eggy, like I hadn't earned my stripes. Mm. And, it, and it's actually, that, that's only a feeling that I kind of, uh, you know, that 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 imposter syndrome 
stable me even up I'd, I'd say until this year really i think this year was probably my first fringe where i really thought i'm i'm doing good in that you know i'm <laughs> i'm i'm not about to get found out right it would be <laughs> it would be absolutely remarkable if if by this point no one's intervened to say what the hell are you playing at uh but no i i don't um i i i still don't think i'm very comfortable with the with the term comedian uh because i still associate it with my heroes who are not doing a job that's that analogous to what I'm doing. Right. But, but I am. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> for, for car insurance purposes, I certainly am. Have you had the opportunity to share a stage with the people that perhaps a few years ago you might not have <laughs> realised that opportunity? Well, yes. That, so that started happening more and more, particularly now I've been emceeing Top Secret more. Yeah. And, and so there's a lot of TV names that drop in. Uh, and that does feel surreal. But also this is another, like, it's been quite validating that they don't seem... Well, at least I don't think they see me as who's this chance of giving it a go. <laughs> but you know, like they walk into a room of people laughing of a similar quality and cadence to the last that they're generating. So, um, no, but it's interesting you mentioned this because my show this year uh, featured Joe Pasquale, yes, uh, or at least his voice, mm. and um, and he, he was one of these people who I grew up thinking, you know, that what he was doing was kind of supernatural on stage you know just this adult being daft and silly and obviously now i know the tricks right he's not making this up <laughs> the cuff he's not creating a new show every night but at the time i definitely thought he was and indeed his audience now i think believe that you know like he corpses at the same point each show but that's still a moment of joy you know yeah. um that's 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 the job that's the trick um but he, he's someone who you know i do remember like age 10 11 my parents taking me to watch him and, you know, getting him to like sign a program at the stage door. It was that kind of level of, you know, what, a, uh, of, 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 of celebrity for me. Mm. And just two weeks ago, he invited me to watch one of his tour shows in Exmouth. And I spent about two hours hanging out with him in his dressing room, basically chatting as, as peers, right. Yeah. Obviously the dynamic is still, <laughs> I'm just my hands laughing because he's just so funny. And uh, I still can't quite believe I still can't quite believe the situation I'm in, uh, but you know, he, he, you know, him and I share a language and mm. he, you know, I, th I, th I think he respects the job that I do. You know, he respects the gigs that I do. Yeah. And, you know, I came up with a line, uh, a tag for one of his jokes and he used it, you know, so, so it's like, <laughs> it's very odd that this is kind of the first, the first year where I've had these moments where people who I did kind of idolize and I appreciate it is Joe Pasquale. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not, it's not like I've, I've, I've done a car show with Steve Coogan yet. Um, but yeah, this is the first time when that's happened and it is, um, it does feel really special. Hmm. And also it's, um, I, I'm going to find this hard to put into words, but watching someone like him hmm. do what they do does give me a huge amount of optimism that I think what we fear as comedians is that we've already written our best joke or we've, hmm. or, or our best shows happened. And I feel that a lot, you know, like right now I'm kind of in the phase where I've, I've put out my last show online. I've just finished an Edinburgh show and I'm starting to do clubs mm. and I'm wondering what material to do. And I haven't got anything new that's exciting, right? right? Everything I'm performing, I've, I first thought of over a year ago, really. Mm. And, and I, and I did start to get a bit worried. I was like, when's the next bit of inspiration going to strike? And then someone tried to nick my phone. I was like, Oh, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but I haven't managed to make anything funny out of that yet. But, you know, he's someone who 30 years in the business or 40 years in the business is still coming up with, you know, he's writing jokes about Harry and Meghan, right? Like the world's changed <laughs> yeah. and he's had to, you know, and he's, he's got to write about it. So I think, what happens is he's got this skill set that he can now apply 
to you know to to novel things and i think something that i didn't realize in my first seven or eight years doing comedy is what we're actually building is not our material but our skill set and in adam bloom's new book which is he's just literally just released this last week Mm -hmm. which i i read a preview edition of uh he was very kind to let me have a look one of the things one of the points he makes is we think that as comics our job is to present our material but really our our material is there to present us right that you know that we're we're not there to go and deliver our jokes to an audience our job is to give the audience an hour of our company and the jokes are just a vehicle to do that yeah i I certainly felt that with my show this year that what i was talking about was kind of inconsequential what mattered was that it was me that was telling it and people enjoy my way of telling things rather than the stories yeah yeah it's interesting because that's something that's come up before i talk about a comedian is perhaps likable you have to first be invested in the individual and then you'll listen to what they have to say that's exactly some advice that joe pasquale said he said the battle is they've just got to like you mm. he said make them like you, and then you're, you're an easy street and i think he's absolutely right yeah our job is to make people laugh right mm. and you definitely can make people laugh um if they don't like you but it's a different kind of laugh it's a kind of an ugly laugh <laughs> yeah are you were you um starting out or and even now are you conscious of the persona that you that you have on stage is it you or is it a character of you I do think it is me but it's obviously it, it's a it's a version of me that I only present the bits which I know audiences like mm. and and also something else has happened you know I started comedy in my early 20s now I'm in my early 30s so obviously I am different right mm-hmm. but the 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 thing that that's kind of state or the, rather the thing that gets told to me a lot is I've got a youthful persona. I perform with a bit of a twinkle in my eye. I'm a bit kind of cheeky. And I do think that's something which I've got to be very aware of, that I can I can do that for the next five or six years. I can still plausibly look late 20s, right? I can still, you know, because I'm, I'm a bit overweight. I'm not, I'm not ugly, but I'm not really conventionally handsome, right? Like I've still got my hair, but I'm not, you know, like there's, 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 there's a look about me, which is quite non-threatening, I think. Um, <laughs> So, so that's why I can get away with saying stuff like, uh, you know, with a big smile on my face, just watch it. Cause I'll fucking bleed you. Right. Like <laughs> people, audience don't, don't take that seriously. They find it funny. Um, so, so there's definitely things which I'll, which I'll say on stage. Cause I've got the benefit of this persona of he's a cheeky boy, mm. which I know mm. that doesn't age well, but what I will <laughs> have in the next 10 years is another 10 years of kind of wisdom and life experience that hopefully will make up for it that people will be interested to hear what I have to say, um, you know, because they, they're they glad to have, they're glad that I've done some thinking about a topic. Yeah. Whereas I think when you're in your twenties and early thirties, audiences aren't that interested in hearing what we have to say uh, because they're like, well, I've probably gone through it too, or I can reason better. Yeah. It's interesting. When you talk about topics, um, you mentioned earlier, you lost your phone and it's like, that's, that's the source of material. Yeah. When something happens, are you in that instant, thinking i can get two three minutes out of this almost almost instantly after or sometimes even going into a situation sometimes <laughs> I, sometimes i'll make a situation worse thinking how, like how can i how can i escalate this in a funny in a funny way or, or sometimes it's just like how can i double down on stubbornness or um or, or sometimes it's like intervening and trying to do good right sometimes it's like how can i i've seen an injustice how can i put it right um but i mean you know you've you've seen some of my shows uh i, I do I do get myself like I do take risks and I do get myself in unusual situations mm. because I like to travel. I like to do unusual things. And so necessarily if I am gigging somewhere unusual or, 
you know, like like it's no accident that I've got loads of bad gig stories because I take on loads of bad <laughs> gigs, right? Because because I like because I like that I like that challenge. I like um, having these like combative experiences with 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 audiences. Right. But no, the fun thing. Well, when it happened, obviously, like I was I was a bit shocked. I was I was traveling down Regent Street and a guy tried to snatch it out of my mm. hand. You know, these guys are motorcycles. That's just what right. they do. But I didn't let go. <laughs> I um. I, I, he had it in his hand and I still had it in my hand and there was like a tussle and there was a kind of a moment where I kind of snatched it back right <laughs> and then he cycled off so obviously the punchline is I think I might be the first person to have stolen to have stolen a phone from one of these motorcyclists <laughs> technically he had my phone uh, but you know so yeah so definitely in the kind of moment after that I'm like oh that you know my heart's racing or oh, that's got me thinking because then what I need is I like I need the angle right, right. in order to take that onto stage I've got to work out well, what does that now mean and so I did. I tried to take it on stage that night. I was at Camden Comedy Club. Right. And my angle was, uh, I've only just moved to London. Uh, and I think I think I'm, I might now be a Londoner, right? Like, like it, it was almost like a badge <laughs> of honor. I'm proud that this has happened because you always hear about it happening, people getting their phones nicked. Yeah. But, you know, the closest I've got to being a true Londoner um, is I had a meal at the Aberdeen Steakhouse and I buy my weekly shop at M&M World. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, so, but almost as soon as anything like this happens, you've got to work out like what, what is the angle? And often the angle is, is like the opposite of what your intuitions are. Right. Right. Like my actual intuition is, oh, this is nasty. I'm yeah. not glad I moved to London, but can I, can I sell it on stage that I am glad? Yeah. Well, talking of your travels, uh, you mentioned about being on television in Japan. How did that come about? Why were you in Japan and what made you uh, a comedian in Japan performing on television? Presumably to a Japanese uh, audience. Yeah, yeah. Although I did, I did do a bunch of English stuff as well, mm -hmm. man. So the 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 too long didn't read is I trained as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, even though as a as a kid and as a young person, I really enjoyed acting and singing and you know doing creative things. Yeah. But I trained as a lawyer, and then as soon as I kind of got the offer of of like being one of these like city types for good money, mm -hmm. I thought ah you know once I do that that's kind of it. So I um, I got a, a scholarship from the Japanese government, which I wasn't technically technically qualified for, but I kind of blagged it. Uh, I just said, you know, trust me, I'll do a good job, <laughs> and uh, they they were wrong to trust me because <laughs> in a year I signed with an entertainment agency. Um, no, I did. So so I went there as a, as a postgraduate researcher in trademark law. So I was affiliated to a university, and I did various things. I you know I took a master's, and I did a research program, and I did some teaching, and I was just you know generally a guy that did stuff and i did well at it you know i i i i, I've, I did rather enjoy it and it was very good for the japanese mm -hmm. uh but then i met i i realized i wanted to do open mic comedy uh yeah. there wasn't an open mic where i was living so i set one up and then in the process of setting one up uh like the local expat magazine put me in touch with a guy that was fairly famous in the region uh an american guy who, who was a tv presenter mm-hmm was funny and who had an interesting comedy so he started to do some of my shows and we became friends and then through that uh, i had a meeting with his agent and then within about about two or three weeks i was on the radio doing live broadcasts in japanese mm -hmm. which looking back is absurd it's, it's absolutely <laughs> mad uh but you know but they but and this is something actually it was one of my, my first big learnings from the entertainment industry that they don't really care about your skill set what they care is what product you offer Mm. right so like it didn't really matter that like i wasn't doing in-depth journalism i was like doing reports on vending machines that that serve um uh what's it called how do you say dashi um stock that serve fish stock oh, right. yeah. or uh, or like a report on 
um the the you know those those raised pavements that for to help blind people navigate oh yeah t- uh, tactile paving exactly tactile yeah, yeah. paving so one of my first reports was on tactile paving in the region because apparently <laughs> it was invented by someone in osaka or something i don't know so like um so it was it was pretty low stakes stuff. <laughs> you know, the product was this kind of crazy foreigner who is stumbling through a report, and and I think that was like that was quite a big lesson that that I I didn't have to model myself on the Japanese reporters because if they wanted a Japanese reporter they would have got one. Yeah, you know, that was something that my producer said to me a lot. She said, you know, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to make jokes, but the point is we want this to be entertaining, and mm. and you know all all the contents that I was you know when I was going on reporting. I was reporting on a festival that had been going for 300 years. That doesn't need reporting, <laughs> right? But what they want is like, is my take. And I think that was, yeah. So, so I did a lot of that kind of stuff. Then I, I did a bit of presenting uh, and I really enjoyed it. And and I, I I would like to do, I would like to do it again. I think um, I'm starting to get back into that kind of thing. Um, and then through that, there were some Japanese comedians that were performing in English and then mm-hmm. they kind of, they were also trying to make stand up a thing in Japanese. So, a couple of us non-Japanese people went on tour with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was performing Japanese stand-up uh, to a Japanese audience and basically bobbing. Most, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, occasionally I did well and it felt incredible. Right. It, it really felt like it felt like I'd um, like broken some spell. Wow. Right. Because I, I, you really had to work for it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, whilst being based in Japan at the time, there was a really buoyant stand-up comedy scene in Southeast Asia. So there were two full-time clubs in Malaysia, there was two full-time clubs, or no, one or two full-time clubs in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Singapore had a club. Um, Thailand didn't have any permanent venues, but I had loads of different, you know, gigs. Yeah. The flights were really cheap. Um, you know, it was like looking back, I remember this, this gig in Thailand flying me out for one night to go and do a gig for them. <laughs> and the airfare was cheaper than a train which I'm taking to London, right? <laughs> uh, so so that's how I so I did I did loads of gigging there. And also, yeah. as some British acts came out, I helped manage their tours. So people like Josie Long, Phil Wang, um, Brendan Burns, Stu Goldsmith. Uh, who else? We had quite a few. And so yeah. through that, I learned a lot. You know, I was watching these watching these comics perform as a fish out of water. Yeah. And then, yeah, I learned how to do comedy in a in a in a very odd environment. And so I completely bypassed the open mic circuit in London, which I'm yeah. very grateful for. Yeah. What about um, cultural differences? I suppose if you're based in Japan, you'll pick up reference points that you can talk about. But visiting comedians, or I suppose if you move around the, the region, you might not have those reference points. Do you have things mm. that you talk about that fall flat, or do you, or do yeah. people laugh at you for the wrong reason? Well, gen- generally speaking, and this is this is something which like there's a reason that the pros are the pros. Like yeah. I remember watching Jim Gaffigan come to Tokyo. I was actually due to open for him, but then there was a visa issue and I couldn't, right. um, but I went to go watch the show anyway. And it was remarkable how good his observational comedy about Japan was. You know, he'd, he'd been there for like six hours, but he had some really fully formed, not only ideas, but mm. full on routines about little little things about how the taxis work how you pay for things Mm. and they were they were observations which i guess other other expat comedians could have observed yeah but he articulates it right and so sometimes it's not about what you notice it's about are you able to articulate it in a way that that resonates and the people that are really good brendan burns is also really good at this Mm -hmm. they can notice the same things but articulate it well almost every visiting comic did a uh, you know, Japanese toilets have buttons and clean your ass routine, but very few of them did it well. Right. 
But then also something else, which I think, I, I think if people haven't gigged in the region, I actually think the gigs are easier right. out there than they are in the UK. And the reason for that is, is twofold. One, um, the language barrier isn't as bad as you think, because a lot of the people are, are either, you know, like Singapore, people are basically native English speakers, or at least the ones that come to the comedy are, mm-hmm. um, or they're an expat crowd of people who um, work professionally in English. So you might have a lot of Germans and French, but their English will be better than a German or a French person in Germany or France. Right. So right. generally the, the language barrier is not too bad. And secondly, you know, Steve Martin said in his book that the the best jokes are about the parking. You know, this idea that if you can talk about something that's universal to everyone in that room. Yes. Something that you get as part of an expat bubble is a very small pooled experience. Often expats will shop in one or two supermarkets and all their kids will go to the same five or six schools and they've all got to travel from the same airport. So it's actually it is actually easier to make observations to an expat crowd because they do have a fairly shared experience because they're actually from a very narrow band of society. They're almost all professionals. You know, they, they've, they're almost all fish out of water. They almost all have had to struggle with learning a language. They've almost all, you know, earning quite good money, typically. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, they, they all just form part of, of, of a very similar socioeconomic background. And so that means that you can you can address them as a group in a way that going and doing a, a gig, you know, in, in the function room of a football club, you can't mm. because you don't know if these people, you know, you, they, they might, these people might not have that same shared affiliation. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned about doing your Edinburgh show. How was your show? How did it go? And how was your overall Edinburgh Festival experience? I had a great one this year. And whenever I say this to people, I, I've had to learn to stop saying it so surprised. Because now <laughs> when rumors, people are like, oh, how was your Edinburgh? I was like, yeah, actually really good. Uh, and apparently that makes it seem like I wasn't expecting or deserving for it to be good. But um, no, I, I really feel like um, – it's going to sound very conceited, but I really feel like the kind of the work's paying off that I I know how to do a show now yeah. that, you know, the first time I, the first time I did a, a, an hour by myself, actually the first time I did an hour by myself was quite interesting. Maybe I'll tell you this. It, it, I, I, I was doing a 10 minute set on a mixed bill, I think in 2017. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a couple of Asian, it was a couple of Asian comics and a couple of non-Asian comics that were based in Asia. And so we did, you know, 10 minutes each talking about, so there was like a, a, a British guy that lived in Hong Kong, um, free handover, he was there. And then I was kind of the representative of Japan, but then there was also a Singaporean and a Malaysian comic. And so that was, you know, that was kind of the theme of the show. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, the guy who produced it didn't put on a show on the last day, uh, but there was still a listing for it. And I turned up to the venue, it was the Pear Tree. Yeah. Uh, and I turned up to the venue um, to do another spot. And I saw there was a gathering of audience there hmm. and uh, they were like, oh, is the show on? And and I said, oh, no. And then I realized there was like 15, 15, 20 people. So I, then I asked in the pear trees, there any free rooms? And there was one of the attic rooms was free. So I said, all right, everyone come up. We'll just do a show. So I did. <laughs> I did my first and I did not have an hour of material. But what I did was I kind of I used it as an opportunity to say, well, this is the show you could have seen. Right. My friend, my friend Jinx, he's from Singapore. He would have talked about this. Um, obviously I wasn't doing their material, but I was like, you know, just kind of, that was my structure to, to structure the hour. Right. And it felt, it, it was a real like zero to one moment of like, I've just had a group of people in a room who obviously I had all this goodwill, right? You know, they, they saw that this was an exciting, fun thing to do. Yeah. It was a bit chaotic. They were totally on my side. Um, but despite not really having an hour of material, I entertained them for about 50, 45, 50 minutes. They gave me money at the end 
and that money came direct to me. You know, they they, they were throwing ten pound notes. Me, I thought, oh my god, this is real money. I, was, I, was, I can't believe it. What are they thinking? Are they mad. Uh, and I, I also remember about five years ago. Yeah, it would have been five years ago exactly. I did a gig at Braintree Comedy Club, uh, run by James Beatty. He's he's fantastic. He's just just wonderful person. And he was doing some Edinburgh previews the next day. And he kind of joked to me and he said, oh, if, if one doesn't turn up, will you do it? And I got like heart palpitations. I thought oh, I could never, you know, for me, that room was enormous. You know, it was like maybe a hundred seater, but it felt enormous. And um, I think Darren Harriet and someone else were doing the, the previews. And I thought I'm nowhere near that level. But now I can, I can knock an hour show out literally last minute. I got, a, I got a call from top secret just before the fringe mm-hmm. uh, saying, Ollie, a comedian hasn't turned up for their preview. Are you nearby? And I was, I was like, I was having a burger about 25 minutes away. So they said, can you get here in 20 minutes? I said, yeah. Um, well, I said, yeah, in about 25 minutes, then we'll hold the audience. So I went and did John Hastings preview slot, right. but I just did my show. And so that for me is like, that's growth. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that I can, that I can literally be halfway through an honest burger, rock up and tell an audience, I'm not ready for this, but let's have some fun together. Yeah. And, and I just have this confidence that, I may not be in the right headspace and I may not have all the material ready, but if the audience's ambition is to have a good time for an hour, we're definitely going to do that. Yeah. From a few years ago, uh, starting out and then to now being able to do a whole show at the drop of a hat in the middle, there was a a large pause. What was your experience when comedy closed down for a a year or so? Yeah. Well, well, I I had a a really good pandemic because I was, so that the, the, the kind of the story of my last show called before after um, is about me basically getting stuck in Malaysia. So I I wasn't planning on living in Malaysia, but because of the lockdown, I got stuck there and my friend who owns a comedy club there that later got shut down by the religious authorities, but that's a completely separate issue here. He owned a comedy club there and I was gigging there a lot and I loved it. It kind of, it kind of felt like a home club, actually, you know, I really felt, comfortable and confident on that stage i'd MC there a lot i'd close those shows a lot and during the pandemic he was about to lose it so we i helped him turn it into a pizzeria so neither of us had any experience doing this but we just watched youtube videos learned how to do it and created a pizzeria um there was a moment there was kind of a crossover period where the club started to reopen to socially distanced customers and i was like spinning pizza dough in the air brushing off the flower then going on stage and i thought this is this is mad this is, <laughs> this is absolutely insane uh so so i had a really good and i had a you know i i joined um an agency which got me a bunch of of zoom work so so i would do corporate comedy on zoom hmm. which i started off hating like genuinely despising but then i learned i kind of taught myself to like it i kind of thought well I'll just treat this like a radio recording. I'm not here to make them laugh. I'm just here to be a fun, entertaining, you know, this is as long as this is the best, as long as this is their best zoom of the week, I've done my job. Yeah. Right. People open zoom with dread normally, but at least if I can, you know, not give them that feeling. So, uh, so I was doing that. So I was earning okay money, uh, in pounds and then kind of living in Malaysia, which has a a lower cost of living. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I met a girl and we we lived together for, for for a while. It was just, I just had a really nice life, but I was still very active in, in comedy. You know, I, w- I was, I was gigging a lot. I was doing these zoom gigs. And then when the first fringe happened in 2021, the first post COVID fringe, yeah. uh, 
which was kind of a, a mini fringe. There was only about three or 400 shows. Yeah. I had an hour, you know, I, I really, I mean, actually I did Ch- Chortle, Steve Bennett from Chortle did say, this seems a bit cobbled together. Well, obviously Steve, how else was I going to write it? Um, uh, but, but I, I, I had lots of material that I'd written out in Malaysia that I could then, you know, form into a show for the UK market. Yeah. I actually, I think I owe a lot of my kind of growth as a comedian to having lots and lots of stage time at, at the crack house comedy club in, in Kuala Lumpur that, that closed down. I would be on there maybe four or five times a week to a, to an owner, to a club owner that really trusted me, you know, that yeah. I could have an absolute stinker. I could take big risks, you know, and I did, I would, you know, people would walk out, particularly the expats. So I'd kind of call them out on their bullshit. <laughs> um, and also there was a period just before COVID where visiting acts were coming through um, really good people, people like Dave Thompson, uh, Freddie Quinn. Mm-hmm. So you know, just kind of gigging with them, and uh, you know, was 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 just you know just wonderful. When you were putting together your show, did you have certain stories or certain messages you wanted to impart, or did you start with jokes and say I, these are jokes I want to tell? Do you start with the funny and tell the story, or you start with the story and make it funny? It's a really good question. Well, I actually, it's funny you um, mentioned this because I wrote. I, I was getting quite a lot of messages from newer acts asking, how do I structure an hour? Because right. people kind of know me as a storyteller mm. for better or worse. <laughs> um, so I wrote a blog post. I don't know where I put it, more medium or something, basically saying, I think there's two ways of writing a show. You basically start with a bunch of jokes, then come up with a story and a message or start with a message, then write jokes to spec. Mm. For the show that I just did, yeah. I had a fairly eventful thing happen to me, uh, which kind of, which was a little portal into a world which I didn't really know much about. Like I, I had the a relatively untraumatic childhood. Like as a as a young kid, I was bullied, and you know, the, the, obviously, you know, bad things happen to to to, to people. But mm. generally, I I had a fairly fairly stable household. Um, certainly, as I got a bit older into my teens, not really concerns about money in the family. Um, and so all oh, my grandparents were, were alive until I was kind of 16. So I had quite a, you know, quite a nice um, childhood and then something quite bad happened. And, and I, and I really started to kind of learn what this idea of trauma is. And I, and I did for the first time appreciate what mental health means. And it's mm. so, I know it's, it's a cliche that comics talk about it, but um, I, 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 don't, I didn't, I got lots of advice to not talk about it on stage and I and I kind of took that advice. There's a couple of comics I really respect, um, who kind of said, you know, just you might not want to be performing about this every single night. Mm. In the end, what I did was I took the parts that only affected me. So there was obviously a, a wider network of bad stuff happening. Mm. Um, and I don't want to go into details, and those aren't my stories to tell. But I can definitely talk about how it affected me. Yeah. Um, and I thought I. I really thought I kind of owe it to myself to just to 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 move to move on because all the kind of therapy and the the like the stoic the stoic thinking and the the kind of self actualization I do feel like it worked and I feel like I'm in a, I'm in a much arguably I'm in a better place than I was pre traumatic event which is a a, a a a a funny thing to think so yeah. I kind of thought I know I want to talk about that yeah so that was definitely kind of in it um, but I also knew that I want to do a show that will sell tickets and no one's going to come and see that show. <laughs> uh, so the thing which most often gets asked to me is talking about my bad gigs. Cause people know I travel and do gigs in the arse end of nowhere. And I tra- travel abroad and I, you know, 
um, I don't, I don't film them all, but if I did, I'd have one of the biggest catalogs of just dealing with idiots. Um, <laughs> so, so, so I need, I knew I needed a hook. So the hook is here are all my bad gigs. Right. Mm. And then the way the show came about was, well, how do I then link, you know, what I really want to talk about with what's going to sell tickets. And there was a link in the, because of this traumatic event, I couldn't gig for a while. And I kind of reappreciate, reappreciated what a bad gig is. Mm. So I think the show, the show, I'm quite proud of the show. I'm not sure how, I'm not sure if I've got a tour in me. I'm going to do it once more in London. First weekend of November, I'm going to do it in the Pleasance. If you're listening to this and there's, and the first weekend of November is still in the future, then by all means come along. (laughs) So basically the show, yeah, the show came about because I, those were the things I wanted to talk about. And then in previews, I just made it funny. I mean, that, and that, that, you know, that's the bottom line, right? And there were loads of things I did try and talk about. There was other, there was, there was kind of an A plot of these, are the bad gigs. There's a B plot of, of my mental health uh, went to shit. And then there's a C plot of, of uh, an ex who I thought I was going to marry. Hmm. And the C plot had loads more in it, right? Like, cause I kind of talked about other dates I'd been on and I talked about, um, you know, this idea of finding a wife and I, I've got loads of good material hmm. that, I do think it's funny, but it didn't really serve the show. So I just had to kind of burn that. Likewise with the bad gigs. I've got loads of bad gig stories, but I realized it was, it was kind of tiring for the audience to kind of hear what <laughs> it, it kind of got to the point. Where they're like, why are you doing this to yourself? Like, <laughs> like, why, why do we keep hearing the same patterns again and again? This is all your fault. So I, I, I then eventually very late in the game, I think like my last preview before Edinburgh, I said to the audience, I'm going to tell you three bad gig stories. And that was like, ah, okay, that makes sense for me and it makes sense for them. Uh, and then the the kind of the bit that this B plot of my mental health, uh, th- there's a there's a thing where I talk about getting knived, which is like, yeah. It, whenever I was thinking, how on earth can I tell this on stage? I thought this is just, you know, I'm just going to have to to go in quickly and come out even harder. But and as long <laughs> as we're leaving laughing, we're fine. So I just I just found a way to present it in a funny way, and I think I achieved it. It's it's actually one of the funniest parts of the show. Um, so yeah, basically, this to answer your question, I knew some stuff I wanted to talk about. Yeah, because that because that's interesting, and I think the most important thing for any show is that it's interesting. Actually, mm. the funny will come if you've got the skill set. You can be funny, yeah. and and I, I I won't I won't have an audience in front of me for an hour and not let it be funny, right? Yeah, and that I can do in the moment. But what I can't do is I can't make it interesting in the moment. I can't fake something that I'm not interested about. So I knew it had to be something that I was really kind of engaged with hmm. uh, emotionally, intellectually. And then, yeah, then I just just kind of kept. And every time I did the sh- every time I did the show, I just kept adding jokes and uh, adding callbacks. And then very late in the game, Joe Pasquale got involved. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that that um that really turned things around. But it's so funny. The show, the show as a product only really comes together at the fringe. So much is dependent on the room yeah. and how people are sat. And Tom and Stephen, who I work with uh, in my production company, you know, how they did the lights. And, you know, just like me putting a banner up behind the stage with a funny little... Mo- all these little elements. That's what actually makes the show. When I really think about... When I think about the show, it's it's, it's like the show was good because loads of things kind of congealed and settled and yeah. also made the decision to not do crowd work because the room I was in was quite quite a tough room to play so I made the decision we've got to seat people together at the front I don't want any gaps I don't want you know because it, it, it's just a very hard room to play otherwise mm. so on that basis the front of the house was like well can you promise you're not going to pick on them then I was like actually yeah I can 
so that was another thing so it was like you know the you know this whole like the medium is the message mm. right like i was doing a show at the fringe in that room and all of all of the things that were all, all of the kind of constraints and uh all of the opportunities i had at the fringe resulted in that show and that's the first time that i've ever written a show like that mm. where like i had it with a room and a goal in mind mm. with no ambitions necessarily to tour it or film it yeah well it's interesting talking about putting together a show and structure and, and that sort of thing are you able to watch comedy as an audience member do you look at structure or can you enjoy it as a, a face value no I, I i definitely can i love i love watching i love watching good comedy mm. um sometimes i will i'll obviously kind of see stuff coming yeah so like like i watched auntie donna's show uh earlier in the week i love auntie donna yeah um australian sketch group mm. and there were two or three moments where i thought okay well that's what they're doing that's why they're doing that or like there, there was one time where one of them came up with a suggestion for a fun song to do and they all said no to it <laughs> and it's like that is the most obvious kind of uh what's the, what's the Chekhov's gun for they're probably going to end the show with that song then right yeah right, <laughs> right. So, so so definitely like kind of structural tricks because i think about it a lot and i also help other comics with it i think some of those i kind of go well fair enough but i also love being surprised i love it and i love telling comics when a joke's really got me yeah um no i i i i think i think the hours a great medium like i know some people say it's too long but i think i think if you can if you can really use that time well mm you you totally can you can take an audience through multiple emotional states in a way that you can't do in a 20 and an act that uses that time well impresses me yeah you said that you MC and also you do spots and you you speak with passion about doing an hour show where do you sit most comfortably um yeah well that, that's something i've had to i've actually had to start thinking about kind of more seriously because i'm I'm now for the first time ever at the stage where I can kind of, I can start to choose what gigs I'm doing. Mm. You know, that I, I, I'm, I think this is the first year where I don't feel like I'm scrabbling for gift for, for gigs. No. You, you know, I'm not, I'm not kind of pleading for any spot at any price. Um, I, I think I'm a good MC mm -hmm. and other, well, and promoters think I'm a good MC. So I do get booked to MC a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I do think I'm a good host, but I don't think my MC skill set is necessarily best used in a comedy club. I'm hoping that this skill set is going to be used for, for example, the game show that I do at the Fringe called Not My Audience mm -hmm. or something adjacent. You know, I, I sometimes I do live event hosting. So like I, I did some hosting for, uh, you know, like National Geographic Food, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that skill set really helps with that kind of thing. So I don't see my future as being a club MC for the rest of my life, but I'm very glad to have built the skill set. Um, I love club comedy, but I I'm quite despondent about the state of the circuit at the moment. Right. That, that you know, there's that there isn't really enough money to earn a, a living just doing circuit gigs, as far as I can tell. Or at least if there is, it's really hard work. It you know, and you're 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 driving to do doubles at the at the at the fee that would maybe attract a single. 15 years ago accounting for inflation mm. and um there are some clubs which are just a joy to play and somewhere it does kind of feel like okay this will be this will be you know this will be work this doesn't feel very creative um but i still really want to earn my stripes on the circuit and i think it's so important there are so many acts which you watch them do their hours and you see that they're they're so smart and they're so good at storytelling and they're so good at structure but what's lacking 
is that kind of circuit readiness. And that I do think that only comes from just doing loads of circuit gigs for a long time. Mm. And, and it's a shame. It's a real shame because sometimes you'll see like an act who's done their first show, their debut is fantastic. And their second show is not as good only because that kind of muscle hasn't been, hasn't been flexed. Yeah. So, um, I think it's really important to carry on doing circuit gigs, but I'm more and more kind of doing circuit gigs where I'm doing longer time. Like I love doing like, there's loads of like European circuit gigs where they often book you to do 30 or 40 minutes. Yeah. So like this week I'm heading out to Luxembourg and, uh, Germany, Frankfurt. Um, and those I'm not necessarily doing my tour show, but I'm just doing a longer set. And that right. feels really nice because I can do something akin to an hour in 40 minutes in that I can take them on a little journey, maybe set up a premise. Um, but also I've got the freedom to crowd work it and, and, you know, do, do whatever I please. Yeah. But my, my ambition is carry on doing my hours mm-hmm. um, and build enough of an audience that, uh, that, that can kind of sustain me. Yeah. Um, and then the circuit stuff, not, not necessarily being how I earn my income. Uh, that'd be, that'd be very nice. And right now I'm getting there, you know, now I, I can just about turn a profit uh, for my solo show at the fringe. Mm-hmm. And I can when I take it to other places because the unit economics are generally quite good, right? If you sell a ticket for 15 pounds and you get to keep 12 of those pounds, yeah. uh, you know, and it is just me or maybe me and a producer or a technician. Uh, often, even if you sell just 40 or 50 tickets, that's better money than than getting booked to to close a circuit gig. Yes. Well, you've mentioned that you talk a lot about the many, many worst gigs that you've had. What's been your best gig so far? Oh, that's a lovely question. What's been my best gig? Uh, I, I remember the first time I thought, wow, I might be good at this was when I, <laughs> I, I, I got booked to do, I thought I didn't get booked. I organized, I tell a lie. I organized a bunch of Japan based comics to go and do a show in Busan, South Korea. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I think I did kind of 30 or 40 minutes in a club environment. And it was just, there was just something clicked. Every single joke landed. I kind of acted. I think it was the first time I might've looked like a comedian to the audience you know i kind of exude this kind of you know they kind of trusted me uh, and all the improv worked so i think that was really really good Mm. um i think a couple of my fringe solo it's it's funny not every show was good at the fringe i don't really understand why but some of them i kind of left going oh i don't think that was very good um but there was there was a couple where uh i teared up at the end because i was just so happy i was happy that like everything i was happy that the audience in front of me were happy. I was even getting some standing ovations, right? So there was an audience that was very happy about what they'd just seen. Mm. Like, I didn't feel like I'd ripped them off. They'd just paid 12 quid and they just had, you know, just taken them on a really funny journey. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, you know, I really did, did kind of cry tears of, of, I don't, I don't know if it's pride or happiness, but whatever it was, I thought, oh God, this is, this is what I should be doing. Um, <laughs> And also knowing that like, there's loads of other brilliant comics at the fringe, mm. right? But not everyone's got to this level. Not everyone's, you know, I, I for a long time felt like I was getting away with every show. Mm. And I had a couple at the fringe where I was like, this is, this was, this was great. Yeah. You know, people are, ha- and you can just tell, you can tell when it's gone well, because people are really excited to buy merch after, you know, they want to come and talk to you. You know, they, 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 they feel like they've been part of something that's, um that's good. Right. Yeah. Um, And I've not had that many times before. Uh. So I'd I'd say I'd say yeah what a couple of those fringe ones and then 
at the fringe as well as my solo show i did a bunch of other things you know i hosted some stuff and went on some compilations and i was one of the acts on five headliners for 10 pounds mm-hmm. at hootenannies yes and that is run by the production company that i'm part of so i kind of I and mean, I'm saying this as a joke. I kind of can't be kicked off the show, right? <laughs> <laughs> and which is not strictly true because we do have an agreement that if I'm not the best act on the night, then we should book a better act. So that so that is actually our policy. But also, uh, you know, I can you know, I can have a complaint made about me, and that complaint ultimately gets addressed to me. Um, so I had a I had a couple where the room was great. It was an eighty seater, air conditioned at the right time, I think 9.15 start, all the other acts were exemplary. You know, we had people like Alistair Barry, uh, Amos Gill, uh, Jambi McGrath, whose 10 minute set is just phenomenally gag dense. Uh, Aidan McQueen, who's brilliant. Uh, it was, uh, oh, we're Anavar Pal, how can I forget? Who's just astonishingly good. So the standard was high. Yeah. And no matter where on the bill I went, I was before and after a great comic. The audience were paying a tenner for this show, which is an absolute steal mm. to see five good acts. Um, and so the room was just so hot. I for the and and I've got a friend called Chanel Ali, who's an American comedian who who came over for the last week of the Fringe, mm-hmm. and she she'd not seen me do stand up before, but she said something. She like she went, "I like it when you're silly," <laughs> right? And 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 I took that to heart. And I for those last kind of few shows. Actually, not even the last few. We ended up doing two shows a night because it kept selling out. So I got two chances to do it each night. Yeah. I went on with the goal of being silly. And this is partly <laughs> like inspired a bit by Pasquale. But it's just this, it was just this idea of like, if I say something in a funny way and it gets a laugh, yeah. then explore why that was funny hmm. and do more of it. Or, you know, if I, you know, if 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 a thought occurs to me about something that's happened in the room or about something that's happened that, that day. Yeah then play, you know, play with it. And so I went on to a couple of these shows really with the attitude of, I'm not here to do a set. I'm here to entertain for 10 minutes. And I know that I can afford to not do brilliantly if that's the consequence of this, because I've got amazing acts before and after. And also Stephen and Tom probably wouldn't kick me off the show if I kicked, <laughs> if I kicked it off us. <laughs> and, um, and so I had the, I had just some incredible sets. In fact, I, I I did one set talking about the, the Tesco meal deal, uh, which I've now kind of added a few more jokes to and put on YouTube. Yes. But Stephen, who's been watching me do comedy for literally 10 years, said that was the first time I've seen you do a set that looks like it could be on Live at the Apollo. He said you were so present. You were so, you know, Stephen does not give me compliments about my comedy very often. <laughs> That's why he's a good producer. Uh, you know, he, he really, he thinks quite poorly, I think, a lot <laughs> of a lot of the choices I make. But it was this combination of the room was hot. I was in a very good mood. Uh, I felt funny. I was I was in good shape kind of comedically. I'd done four or five shows. Mm-hmm. And I just was, you know, being playful and honest and uh, just, you know, inc- incredibly big laughs. Laughs like I've never got before. Yeah. People really bent over, hurting with laughter. It just, just just enjoying the cadence of me talking rather than what I was saying. And this kind of goes back to that thing we were saying earlier about our job is not the material. It's about us. Yeah. And I think it was me being silly. It was me just causing this little storm for 10 minutes that people were enjoying. And it felt fantastic. And I'd love to be able to, to do more of that. I don't know how, um, but I've got, I've got to kind of re- re- replicate that, that feeling. Mm. So on the back of that, then what, are, what do you think are the most important lessons that you've learned so far? Um, 
that experience counts for a huge amount mm -hmm. and that there is you know a, a lot can be a lot can be achieved and a lot can be rescued by just being experienced and having played certain types of gigs before and having to and having made certain types of decisions before mm. you know you're not you're not coming up on the moment with a response you're going through the rolodex of how how have i dealt with this analogous problem before right uh so I, I think that's 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 a really important one. I think um, I think getting over that feeling that like the audience is doing us a favor, because I totally feel that. I totally feel so proud and lucky that I get to be able to do this. Mm. But I don't think that's a particularly helpful attitude to go on stage with. I think it's a good attitude to have generally, and I think certainly when I kind of when I'm kind of thinking about, you know anything to do with this industry i'm starting from a position of well i am living my dream and i'm just so grateful that these opportunities are coming even if i lose them or even if if, if they don't work out but i do think on stage one of the kind of one of the things i did this year was try and get myself in the mindset that i am providing a service to the audience that they've you know they've come to the fringe to be entertained mm -hmm. and to have a good time yeah. and i shouldn't let my gratitude that i get to do this get in the way of that job mm. I, 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 maybe I'm not articulating myself very well, but <laughs> like above all else, my job is to entertain the people that have come to see me. Yes, and that might mean I need to change course, or it might mean that I need to do something that that I hadn't planned to do. But it's better for me and it's better for my audience if I go in with an attitude of they have come because they are trusting me to entertain them for an hour. Mm. So I shouldn't be ashamed that that's what I'm doing. Yeah, and I and I for a long time kind of felt embarrassed and ashamed that I'm about to get away with this, right? <laughs> yeah, just on the on a little further from what you just said, it's also the the audience buying into the individual and the fact that when you go on and play around and be silly, you're allowed to enjoy it, and if you enjoy it, the audience will enjoy it more because they trust you and they enjoy what you're doing. Yeah, and I guess it I, I guess it's like this isn't very useful advice to someone starting out because <laughs> an audience won't trust you if it's your first show because it's your debut. So maybe there maybe there's a bit of buzz about you and that buys you some goodwill, or maybe you've got a really good PR and massive posters and that provides a bit of excitement. But I do think it's like goes back to the first thing I said, it's only through kind of experience of kind of knowing, well, I must have done, I don't even know, maybe even over a thousand solo shows. How can I even work it out? I've done a lot. You know, I've I've done I've I've had an hour, I've had an audience in front of me for an hour many many times, mm -hmm. so just kind of trusting that it's always worked out, <laughs> uh, and so I've, and so I've so I've got to go in with that attitude of let's you know let's let's deliver let's deliver this 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 product yeah, um, and then the final kind of lesson from this fringe is serendipity is a wonderful thing, and I think generally it's it's so easy to to kind of get bogged down in, you know getting a certain type of press or meeting the right industry or whatever, but kind of trusting that there isn't a system, right? And because there's not a system uh, and because the comedy industry is just a whole bunch of self-interested people, which which is not a bad thing. That's how it should be. Right. Mm. Um, that I didn't go into the fringe with kind of particular goals in mind, but I certainly left with opportunities that I thought, wouldn't that be nice if I could do that one day? And I can't talk about, um, I can't talk about, them right now because nothing's come of them yet and so i'll jinx it but there's there's two or three things which i kind of thought that would be a nice thing to, to do one day or that would be a nice thing to to have happen yeah um yeah. and they are happening or at least they're in the early stages of happening not because i necessarily tried but because i just did good work and showed up 
and was kind of consistent. Yeah. And I I never believed it. When, I, when I'd listened to like ComCom pods and comedians with 10, 20 years more experience than me saying things like, it's all going to be okay. <laughs> it's very hard to believe it. But I do think it's true. I think if you just stay in the game, do good work, try not to be too much of a dick. I think I think you have to be a bit of a dick. Uh, you have to be a little bit self-interested. But generally, if you if you just kind of keep keep on showing up, provide something which people are interested in seeing, um, and and kind of just just kind of be fair and consistent in your dealings, then out of nowhere opportunities do just come. Yeah, which I didn't believe before. How can we find out about you and where we can come and see you perform? Uh, my, I, I post uh, my, all my stuff. Well, actually, the best is my mailing list. I send an email every couple of months with like my plans for the next few months. And that's that's really nice community of people. These are all people that have seen me or heard me somewhere. And people reply to the emails. And, you know, I've like, it's just, it's, it's, it's nice. Um, and often people will come to a show and say, you know, in fact, I did a show in um, Melbourne this year mm-hmm. and someone said i've been on your mailing list since 2018 and it was <laughs> I, it, I couldn't just couldn't believe it. i thought do these i didn't even know these people existed of course they do because i see them turn up to the shows but it's very it's really <laughs> hard to like join the dots uh so my mailing list ollihorn.com there's a button there and i and i think that's like you know i'm i'm quite honest there as well like you know i'll, I'll say when things are going well and when they're going badly so sign up to the mailing list if um if you want to hear more from me and then i post all my kind of circuit stuff on uh, Instagram, which is Ollie Horn Comedy. Um, but if this is going out kind of late October, then try and see me at the Pleasance, uh, and then likely heading off to um, my plan. I've not really had any any time off at all since COVID, and even COVID didn't really feel like any time off at all. So for the first time ever, I'm going to try and not work for a bit. And so my plan is to not do the December Christmas season, and I'm going to go and be somewhere in Southeast Asia and somewhere where it's not too expensive yeah. to be and just um, exist for a bit. And then, um, and then go and work very hard during the Australian festival season and then back to the UK for Brighton and then back for <laughs> Edinburgh. And then it continues. Either uh, I'm a household name or bitter. <laughs> and so my final question then, Ollie, how would you summarize comedy in a nutshell? I think comedy is it's it's a calling i think for a comedian it's like every comedian that's done an open mic and got that first laugh something's clicked there's been like a there's been a series of moving parts in your head and when you stand on that stage and it feels right uh it, it does kind of feel like a calling it feels like this is something which i'm naturally predisposed to do and i've just got to find the right vehicle for whatever that feeling is mm. um so I think that's my like that's my sensible answer. The actual answer is <laughs> the intersection between ADHD and alcoholism. <laughs> Ollie, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much, man. <laughs> <laughs>